This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest for the week, uh, Wan Azrik, you're from Laka Infect and you're here to talk to us about uh, Munshi Abdullah, right? Yes, we have an exhibition on the 23rd of November in Melaka. Mm-hmm. The venue is called Rumah Melaka. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's located in Jalan Tokong near Jonker Street. Okay. So the exhibition will be held for two weeks. Okay. Uh, okay. What, what is the exhibition about? Uh, the main subject or our main star of the exhibition is uh, our own uh, father of modern literature, Mr. Munshi Abdullah. Uh, but the unique of this exhibition is that we're going to present him as a social media influencer. So that's okay. so that's the title of the exhibition, right. Munshi Abdullah as a social media influencer. So you have a new spin on uh, yeah, this yeah, very yeah. historical yeah, figure, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And as I understand it, even though he's sort of seen as a father of sort of Malay modern literature, yes. he's also quite a controversial figure yeah. or uh, there are different sides to his iconicity. Yes. Uh, can you sort of maybe tell us a bit more about who Munshi Abdullah is mm. for viewers who are not familiar with uh, his work mm. or his uh, the things that he was sort of like involved in. Well, he was born as uh, Abdullah bin Abdul Qadir uh, of a Tamil origin. You know, his great grandfather was from Yemen, mm-hmm. and he grew up during the 19th century when there was a huge political turmoil between Imlaka uh, and then the opening of Singapore. He moved there. He was very much at the center of of the his major events that was going on during the mm. 19th century. And also when printing started in, in the Malay Peninsula. Okay. Okay. So uh, he started early on in his life as a translator. You know, okay. uh, the name Munshi, the the title Munshi, he got it during his early teens. He was teaching uh, Indian soldiers. At, okay. At the Malacca garrison, mm. uh, language and also teaching a bit of religion. So they considered him as a teacher. Right. So, so that's how the title came about. You know, he was called. Teacher Munshi, that's what Munshi means, a teacher. Mm. So and it stuck with him uh, until until now uh, Until okay. now we know him mainly as Munshi Abdullah. Right. Okay. Uh, so, but his interest in writing started uh, even earlier than that. You know, okay. he was. I think uh, even when he was in in at home, you know, he he rarely go out to play with, with the other children. You know, because he had a very strict upbringing with his father when he was, uh, I think, seven or eight. You know, he was already able to read and write. Because mm-hmm. you have to understand, during this time, most even Malay people they only know how to read the Quran, but they don't learn formally how to write uh, in the Malay language. You know, because right. it's seen like if you're a Malay, why would you want to learn your own language? You know, mm. so he. Uh, but his father was a, a quite a educated person. Uh, he was working with the Dutch administration at that time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, so he, the dad used to have um, a connection to the Dutch. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, administration, right? Uh, he was uh, just like Munshi himself. He mm-hmm. was a, a copyist, a writer, and also a collector of uh, Malay manuscripts. And he mm-hmm. travelled around the peninsula collecting manuscripts for the Dutch. Mm. So he kind of passed on that knowledge, that skill to his son. Or that, even that interest, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, oh. yeah. oh, cool. Great. Uh, so uh, what makes you were suggesting uh, just now that he was born into a time of great sort of like a uh, huge sort of like change, right? Yeah, there yeah. was uh, uh, both uh, political sort of like changes happening in Malacca itself yeah. as well as technological sort of like changes. So what was he encountering? Well, uh, politically, I think uh, when he was born, it was uh, the transition between the Dutch era to the British. Okay. So he, he witnessed that, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest events that he uh, witnessed when he was 11 
was the destruction of the Malacca Fort. Okay. okay. And so at that time, the person uh, that was instructed by the East India Company was uh, William Farker. So he, if you read his uh, masterwork, you know, Hikayat Abdullah, uh, there's one chapter that describes uh, in detail in very dramatic fashion how mm. the explosion occurred. And there were other events, you know, and when Raffles arrived, you know, he was hired. And he, at that time, he was around, I think, uh, 14 years old. Mm. Uh, he was hired as a, a scribbler and also a translator for Raffles. Okay. Uh, can you imagine someone at the age of 14 being hired by the British mm-hmm. at that time? So even when Raffles moved to Singapore, he was he went there you know, and he translated the first uh, Singapore uh, Pentecodes. So okay. he was a translator and also the printer. Mm. So that's the other unique, uh, I think, important uh, event in his life when during 1815, the London Missionary Society arrived in, in, in Malacca. Okay. So now these missionaries, they came to spread Christianity. They were Protestant uh, in the Malay Peninsula, but they were also interested to teach uh, the locals. In the beginning, they wanted to teach the Chinese. That's mm-hmm. how they wanted to spread the knowledge of Christianity through printing. Right. Um, but, but as I understand it, they were also using Malacca as a sort of test bed, right? Yes. Principally to yeah. enter the Chinese yes, but sort they, of like uh, market. Yeah, so Malacca yeah. was sort of like a midway point for them to sort of test out some ideas. Yeah. But when it's ready, then they would be able to sort of like infiltrate that yeah, knowledge uh, into China, right? Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. at that time, it was still a closed door. Uh, so they couldn't mm. go directly into China. So they decided, why not we try uh, Malacca, you know? Mm-hmm. And then they thought that if if we're going to come, uh, spread the the religion here, why don't we approach the Malay also? Okay. So that's why, uh, and in the same year, during the 1815, they brought in uh, a Dane uh, missionary, C. Thompson. Mm-hmm. Thompson arrived, and his task was to for the Malay communities. Okay. Uh, so according to uh, Munshi Abdullah, he encountered uh, one of the missionaries, and from there he was... Introduced to the Malay version of the Bible. Okay, uh, right, right. So it was already translated of at course, that time. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. already translated in Dutch and badly translated. Badly translated. <laughs> uh, that was his yeah. his issue actually. Right. You know, when he took the book home, he read it and he said, "Oh, sh- the language is yeah, really yeah, problematic." Yeah. And, uh, uh, in Hikayat Abdullah, he actually sort of like uh, makes fun of how mm-hmm. uh, Kiko the whole sort of like yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. languages, like the use of languages by yeah. the Dutch. So that yeah. that's what he wants us to believe, like, That he his yeah. interest with the missionaries was mainly because of the grammar, right, <laughs> you know, right, right, the grammar, right. and he was he he wants to make sure that whatever comes out by mm. these missionaries was a proper Malay language. Right, right. But yeah. I think he was also fascinated by something else, right? Yeah. What did the missionaries bring along with them? Along with them came, I guess, the printing press as well. Yes, it, it did. It did. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what, what was so sort of like unique or special about I this think, moment? Uh, two years after the LMS set up their press in, in, in Malacca, the real uh, proper technology came from Bengal. And so okay. with the arrival of uh, William Madhurst, Matt Hurst was the more was the more experienced and trained printer. So when he arrived, he uh, he was teaching, uh, guiding Munshi uh, Abdullah for three months how to do the typesetting, how to cut the the letters, and I think at that time he his fascination was to see Malay manuscripts in printed form. Uh, at that time, it was a rare thing, you know, because mm. Malay manuscript it was either owned by the aristocrats mm-hmm. or by a selected amount of, uh, of people, you know. Mm. It wasn't something you find on the street or whatever, you know. Oh. So for him to see, uh, even though it was a missionary text like the Bible, but it, he was impressed to to see it was printed in, in, in Malaysia, you know. Mm. Uh, okay, so, okay. Uh, I think right. his fascination with technology was was always apparent because even as a young boy you know 
you know, he was reading a lot of, of books you know, that were provided by his father and he wasn't he was spending most of his time at home mm-hmm. so he had that kind of curiosity you know mm-hmm. and i think it goes hand in hand with the way the protestant missionaries viewed the world as well mm-hmm. as you know the protestant is a very kind of individual right. way of looking at the world you know you go through your own introspective means you read mm-hmm. uh, through printed you read your own bible mm-hmm. so the way i think munshi also read his book you know so they were a perfect match lah you know the missionaries and the way munshi grew up you know right okay cool mm-hmm. yeah but you know uh, was the Typesetting already introduced right at the very sort of like beginning for Malay Jawi printing. Uh, it was quite a, ch- uh, a challenge, you know, because because I, I don't imagine that with uh, sorry, I don't imagine that would be something that Malay readers will sort of like find very familiar, right? Yeah. The, the way that a typeset would yeah. arrange the uh, abjads, yes. Uh, yes. only because uh, you know when you write. The abjad, mm-hmm. it tends to be a lot more cursive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, words, uh, each individual letter then connects to the next. Uh, whereas in the typesetting, you have to sort of like you know configure it in a certain way for it to Mm-mm. connect. And reading it is not the most sort of like easy thing. You have to sort of learn to almost sort of like read yeah. uh, the language. Yeah. How how do, how how do they adjust around it? Was was then did they not sort of like print in lithograph or did that come later? That came uh, a bit a bit later okay. in Singapore. Uh, but I think even when it was in Malacca, they already discovered that most of the Malay communities uh, were not familiar with printing press at that time. Okay. So when they encountered, even though it was Malay text, you know, but it felt. Strange. It looked. It looked strange. It, uh, it looked different from the hand handwritten Jawi, you know. Mm. So that was one reason why they switched to lithograph, not just for economic purposes because it was cheaper, but also they could copy exactly the handwritten Jawi, you know. Mm. Mm. So because, like as you know, like lithography is just you do a handwritten and you copy it and you do it over and over again, you know. So and it was much more easier compared to letterpress mm-hmm. because you get have you had to import the blocks, you had to cut it. One by one, you know, and it was, it was in Jawi, so it was a, a bit more challenge, you know. Okay. Uh-uh. Right. So uh-huh. the cutting actually happened in Malacca itself. Yes, it did. Okay. Uh, yeah, because when they started with letterpress, so mm-hmm. when Menhurst came, he was teaching Munshi to do letterpress first, you okay. know, and then when he migrated to Singapore, uh, one of Menhurst's students was uh, Kisbury. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kisbury uh, learned uh, lithography already. So I think he met Abdullah in Singapore, and they collaborated together lah at that mm. time. Mm-hmm. So most of the major works of Munshi Abdullah also came during that time, you know, because of his collaboration with Kisbury. Because Kisbury was not only a missionary, he was also very, can say, someone who was very in, wanted to try new things in printing. You know? he wanted to do coloured printing, you know. So yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's. Mm, interesting. Um, you know, um, uh, I, I think for me, one is the most sort of immediate thing when it comes to the printing press is that. It almost as if it changed the way we understand the text, Malay text itself, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if previously Malay text is something that is recited collectively yes, in a yes. in a public space or in a sort of like private domain, mm-hmm. but something that is experienced uh, through listening and through sort of like a collective sort of like coming together of people, mm-hmm. uh, now you have a different way of, in which you engage with the text. Yes, it's centered on a, a person, yeah. and uh, it's a it's a one to one relationship between. A person and a text. Yes, yes. Yeah. So how how what change did that sort of like bring to sort of uh, you know literary culture in the Malay world? Mm, I think when we talk about his contribution in in the literary world, we always look at his style of writing and, right. and how he 
brought himself into the work. You know? But I think it's also about how when you read a, a printed text, you know, it's always an individual with the world. You know? It's not about right. listening. Oral history is the collective mind and you collect it. Together. Now you have to make your own mind. You, know? mm-hmm. you read and you make your own mind. So it's a much more subjective uh, view of the world. And mm-hmm. even when you read, for example, his work, like Ikaya Abdullah, you can see that he uses a lot of verbs where I, I, I see this, I saw that, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the empirical experience, you know. Right. Not just the, 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 the subject being present in the work, mm-hmm. but also what witnessing. you see and witnessing something, you know. Right. Uh, and what makes him very ambiguous and also very fascinating, uh, Abdullah, is that he will witness or and observe all this event in details, you know. But his moral stand sometimes is very blurry, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost a kind of detached manner, you know, of, right. of looking at the world, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas before that, it was always with a sense of morality, you know, a sense of, of You culture. mean with the hikayat? Yes, the previous hikayat. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But if I recall uh, some of the stuff that I've read on uh, by Munshi Abdullah, he also often ends his uh, his chapters with a nasihat, right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so there is still some... Yeah, there's still uh, yeah, the influence like, from, the, from, the, from old, uh, yeah, the old... The old convention, yeah, uh, uh, sort of how uh, you write, uh, uh, how you deliver uh, an observation. Uh, or, or, yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that's the other side of his, in terms of modernity that he brought to literature because he wasn't totally familiar. He wasn't trained to become a Malay, traditional Malay writer, you know, like mm-hmm. Raja Ali Haji, you know, grew up in the, in the, in the palace, you know. Right. He knew all of the, the classical Malay texts. He was just a normal guy from Laka, you know. Mm. Uh, so he learned by himself and through his father. Mm. But at the same time, he had to write in the Malay language, you know, which he loved so much. Mm. So he had to make do, you know, like... Okay, I'm, I've read this Raih Melayu, I've read the Hikayat, but I need to convey what I want in a simple language that maybe the Europeans could understand. Mm. Uh, so his language was somewhere in between. Uh, okay. Somewhere in between the Hikayat's influence and also what he he learned from, I mean, through his uh, society, you know, the urban metropolitan society. You know. Okay. Uh, All right. Okay, so... Um, Fascinating thoughts are right there. Uh, so um, we have to take a break. You're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharuddin and Simon Stone. And this week, we're joined by one Azrik from Laka Infact. Um, he's been chronicling the life of uh, Mushi Abdullah, right? And his contribution to the world of uh, literature and also to the world of printing as well. Uh, so uh, stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you tune in to Night School with me, Hanif Baruddin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Wan Azrik from Malacca. In fact, um, he's here to talk about Munshi Abdullah and anything in the first part before they chronicle his contribution in the Malay literature and also uh, in the printing press. Uh, now, I understand that he's going to be, uh, I mean, in your exhibition, he's going to be, I think, the centerpiece of your exhibition. And I think mm-hmm. you're going to look at it from a perspective of social media, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. let's explore that. What do you, mm-hmm. uh, how do you connect Munshi Abdullah? a great literary figure uh, in the Malay world and also the, in the printing world mm. to social media. Mm. I think when we call someone a social media influencer, it's someone who is able to use the media to create impact and to distribute a knowledge or culture. You know? mm-hmm. So it, it might be strange when we hear that we Munshi Abdullah as a social media because there was no Twitter, Facebook at that time. It was just the printed and the written uh, media. You know? But if you observe closely you know, and the way he observed and recorded uh, live events during his time, you know, like the explosion of the Malacca Fort, you know, and when he was travelling around Kelantan and mm-hmm. Trangano. So it's very similar the way we news 
Facebook or Instagram. When we mm-hmm. see something, we take a picture and we share it. Mm. And it's, it's the same thing, you know. He saw it, he recorded it, and then he distributed it and he printed it. You know? right. So that is one one way of looking at how he engaged, how he news media, and how he engaged with the media is quite similar to the way we use it today. You know, in mm. in our engagement with the world, mm. you know? and the. the the other side of, of being a social media influencer is also the person. Right. Uh, you build a kind of persona. You build. You create your own kind of, you could say, identity on the social media. You know. Mm-hmm. Because the thing about Mushi Abdullah is that uh, the only thing we know about him is through his work. We rarely know who he was actually. You know. Mm-hmm. Because when you try to cross reference with the people that he mentions, like Raffles, Farker, whatever, there's rarely mention of his. Of of him, you know, by the okay. Europeans. Right. You know? So we know him mainly through his work. But is it? Really, him, you know. Uh, mm. It's like when we engage someone on Facebook, you know, we know this person, this public figure, you know, so much. But do we really know this person? It could just be something that the person is trying to sell through the social media, you know. Because mm. yeah, we build a persona, different persona. I think even for myself, when I'm using Twitter, I have a kind of slightly different attitude when I'm using Facebook. Okay. You know? Yes, and you see that also in Mushi Abdullah's life and his work mm-hmm. when he was doing the case player to Kelantan, it was a much more kind of anti-monarch, you know. And right. then you go into his later work, it's a much more calm, spiritual, you know, when he's travelled to Mecca, you know. Right. Uh, so there's that different uh, side to his life, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. But, uh, you know, uh, one thing about sort of like social media is also about the reach, right, that a person sort of like have to be an influencer on, mm. say, Instagram today, you will need at least, I don't know, what's the figure now, 15,000 <laughs> followers? Mm-hmm. What kind of reach does uh, did Munshi Abdullah sort of work have well, uh, if- during the 19th century? Well, we, maybe during that time, the if, okay, today when we look at social media influencers, we, we the person must have a follower and haters, yeah. and they, there's always that kind of discourse, right? Okay, I, I did like he it. have haters? He did, you know, but even back then already. Yeah, okay. that's why uh, oh. there were people who called him uh, Abdullah Padri, you know, Father. Ah, uh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, uh, because uh, he was teaching the Bible, and these were his close friends, and they were and, and they were saying that he was trying to spread the, the Christianity religion, you know. So they called him Padre Abdullah. Mm-hmm. So he had haters on both sides, actually, in you know, the Malays and also the the some of the missionaries, you know, they were doubtful whether he was quite uh, honest in doing his work, you know. Okay. But I think his legacy is is what happened afterwards, you know. His opinions about the Malay people, his opinion about the the monarchy, you know, mm-hmm. and how that has created a much discourse. You know, was he anti-Malay? Uh, did he hate uh, the the Islamic religion? You know, the conversation continues uh, up to today. Up right? to today, yes. Uh, right, mm-hmm. right, right, right. Interesting. You know, um, for for someone like uh, Munshi Abdullah, I guess why do you think he was sort of like fascinated by the print media? What 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 potential did he sort of see? In, in this new technology and why did he embrace it so readily? Mm, because I think one thing that he saw that the local community and the Malay society you know, was was reluctant to learn uh, knowledge, to embrace technology you know, because they were uh, stuck you know, with feudalism you know, mm-hmm. and, and there were this blind loyalty to the to the sultanates and then so why wouldn't they for example why, why wouldn't they want to learn their own language you know mm-hmm. and he I mean if you grow up it's like growing up in city you're exposed to all sorts of technology you know? so um, and being surrounded by Europeans you know, he encountered the knowledge of electricity mm-hmm. when the steamship came to Singapore you know, he did a reportage of the ship and it 
publish in details and you know? so he was always fascinated by technology by mm-hmm. and also by progress mm-hmm. you know? and he was basically also a reformer and you know? he want people to learn education you know and not to blindly accept whatever kind kind of uh, old ways of looking at the world you mm-hmm. know i think that's why uh, some scholars compare him to mahadev today mm-hmm. you, know, you know of being very critical and also being progressive you know? okay mm-hmm. oh very interesting i have you <laughs> ever heard of this mahadev and uh, well, the the lamunchi comparison uh, well, they're both kind of uh, pran- kind of oh Indian, right that's you know? right uh, that's right, one, right. one thing <laughs> both are very very uh, <laughs> critical you know of 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 the monarchs right know, yeah. right and the tajam uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, very interesting yeah it's quite interesting um coming back to his personality and 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 the conversation surrounding whether he'll be able to you know be an influencer right mm-hmm. Like you said just now, we don't really know that much about him, his personality. But mm-hmm. um, how does he how he juggle between um, these different personalities that he has through his work? You said that he has different versions of himself, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, so was it very jarring the differences between his personalities, or uh, was there still a core personality that you can still see that shine through throughout all all these different works? Mm. Well, he had uh, one one of his sons also became a writer. Uh, Muhammad Ibrahim was a writer, so. There wasn't that much description about about the father, but there was one uh, interesting uh, depiction uh, description that he said uh, his father whenever he came back from Singapore to Melaka. So uh, when he was working in Singapore, the family never went with him; they stayed in Melaka. Okay. So he had to commute between Melaka and Singapore like every six months. So whenever the father came back, you know, he pictured him as someone who was always. Uh, having fun going to parties mm-hmm. drinking spending time with friends you know taking them out you know a very joyful person you know even people who knew him closely were very fond of him you know and they miss him so much when he died you know mm-hmm. that side you don't see at all in, in the work you know okay. in the work is always very critical right. uh, very like he's on a mission <laughs> uh, on a mission you know and also i think because he was working with the europeans he was okay. working for the missionaries you know So uh, there were in throughout his career there was only two works where he wrote that, that he was quite free. It uh-huh. wasn't being sponsored or being overseen by a, by a missionaries. One is Shah in Singapore Tabaka, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, a record of the fire that happened in Singapore in Kampung Glam, right? Uh, is that the one? No, this one no. was before. There's two Shah. One is Shah in Singapore Tabaka, and the other one is Shah in Kampung Glam. Okay. And his last work, last work to Mecca, right? Which uh, he to didn't finish. Jeddah. <laughs> uh, yeah. He stopped in Jeddah. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, Jeddah. Yeah. And these are the only two works where he was uh, he wasn't uh, restrained. You know? Okay. And he had all the freedom he need, and and it's very you can see it. You know, mm-hmm. when you read like the journey to Mecca, uh, he's very very personal, less critical. I mean, not critical at all. Actually, you know, mm-hmm. he observed and, and or actually, he might have another life outside of yeah. only being a colonial <laughs> subject, right? Yeah. Uh, I think sometimes we forget that uh, you know people living through certain sort of like period or mm. certain age are not only bound by the kind of like discourse that we normally think of that particular period in time. Mm. You know, living under colonialism doesn't mean that you're ever only just like uh, a rebel yeah, or yeah. You're, you're 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 a stooge. Mm. Uh, you also have your own personal life. Right, and you have your personal interests, yeah. and, and the, the thing that most I, people is we all most people just see on the surface right. who he, he who he was, you know, because they okay. see that oh he was very uh, brutal and and tough on the Malays. But when you really look at, at some of the things that he wrote in Hikayat, mm-hmm. the the commentaries to Europeans are, are hidden. Right, you know, like when he describes Raffles. On the surface, it looks as if he's praising rifles to the sky. You know, he had this mm-hmm. forehead, this long nose, beautiful nose, blue eyes. 
But you have to remember he also reads one of the Hikat Tayus Salatin. Mm-hmm. And in the Tayus Salatin, there are descriptions that is very similar in style with the way he describes Raffles. And when you compare between the two texts, mm-hmm. when he says uh, the nose is like this, and you compare what it means in the Tayus Salatin, it means a negative Right, uh, a negative uh, character. Okay, uh, if the if the forehead is big, means someone who's lazy. You know? Right. If you read Nikai, it looks like oh, this is a great right. figure. You know, so there's all that kind of subtleties towards Europeans right. that the is not transcripts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. it's hidden. You know, it's hidden there. You know, right. Very interesting. So let's go back to this sort of topic of um, social media. Mm-hmm. I asked this only because I'm very curious how you're going to sort of stage this as an exhibition, right? Mm-hmm. And I asked you earlier whether you're aware that uh, as part of the Singapore Bicentennial, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, in Singapore, what they have also done is to uh, commission this website called uh, 700 SG, mm-hmm. which is to look at uh, Singapore 700 years of sort of history. Mm-hmm. And uh, this website is a very interactive website in mm-hmm. which they cast all these uh, pioneering sort of figures in Singapore's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've claimed Munshi Abdullah as a, a, a pioneer of Singapore, of course, mm-hmm. in this context. Mm-hmm. Uh, how they've sort of like cast them is that they use a live feed sort of like format in order mm-hmm. to track their life story, Mm-mm. right? Uh, so uh, they would uh, they would each have a sort of like Facebook account, and uh, in each of their live feed, there will be pe- uh, different people, different characters from history interacting with uh, with these sort of like pioneering figures. Yeah. Uh, so that seems to be a very sort of like popular format <laughs> yeah. to make history a lot more relatable to the general public today. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Are you exploring a different sort of like format? How are you going to play this out in an exhibition? I wonder. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine it being played out on web website but in an exhibition uh, how are you going to sort of like draw out some of these, uh, these small, some of these more quirky sort of like culture <laughs> yeah. that has like, emerged in social media yeah I think when, when you go into the exhibition this exhibition the, usually you will see all the panels is arranged as if it's a social media uh, apps you know you will have kind of in Pinterest form, you will have a Facebook panel so but the content is what he did at that time you know so for example when he went uh, undercover to explore the Chinese underworld, you know, uh, mm, we present yeah. it as if it's a Facebook status. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when we, when you, when the explosion of the Malacca fort, uh-huh. it's a very live event. So we present it as a Twitter thread. Mm. Uh, so we're using different, all the different social media apps and how, if he was alive today, and that's the question, how would he use it? How we engage those those technologies? You know? And we present all these different apps visually and during the, throughout the exhibition. Mm. You know? mm. Why would playing with all these formats make mm. the work more relatable or make history more relatable? How does it work? To show uh, that history is a continuation, the way we engage with language, the way we engage with the world, how we news media. Mm-hmm. It's not much different from how our ancestors, our earlier forebearers, news language, you know, because it's still about our relation to the world and how we use a certain medium to engage with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are always fascinated by historical events by important figures, you know, because that's why we gossip, that's yeah. why we debate, you know, that's why people become controversial. Right. We we have that, that nature inside of us to share, right. to talk about something, you know. I think it's there, you know, he was fascinated with the Europeans, no doubt. Okay. And he was kind of shocked you know, with what the state of poverty in the East Coast. So mm-hmm. he wanted to share because he, he knew he had the knowledge right. and he had the technology. So that's why he learned printing. Okay. That's why he took the time to to write and then printed it out, you know. Even though it was a way of earning a living, right. but it was also curious, you know, 
if I have this knowledge, how can I use it? You know? Okay. Mm. And one of the things about you know social media is not that it's a medium for communication only, mm. right? Uh, what it does is it actually allows for interaction to take place. Mm. Uh, you know, actually for conversation to mm. sort of happen. How did people write back? How did people respond? Uh, were there other platforms? Uh, were other writers sort of like uh, using uh, print media to, or, or uh, uh, the printing press to sort of like uh, respond to some of uh, Munshi Abdullah's publications or Munshi Abdullah's sort of like thoughts and opinions? Well, at that time, uh, the, the, his contemporaries were some Malay writers like Raja Chula and Raja Ali Haji, but there's no direct engagement, I think, between these different groups at that time. He was in the in Singapore and Melaka, the others were in other parts of the States. And I think it was an early stage of printing. It wasn't massively distributed, you know, even though his work were printed in Jawi, you know, mm-hmm. it, it came out only in, in a small community, you know. Only a bit later, after his death, you know, the the Dutch took his interest in his work and they printed and translated for schools. Uh, okay. It's in, uh, throughout the in Indonesia and also in Malaysia. So, and I think one of the first person that kind of uh, brought his his work, you know, uh, into this education system was Wilkinson, you know. And he was also one, the, no, no, it was Skinner, but yeah, Wilkinson brought into the education system, you know. If you compare him with the other Malay writers at that time, you know, he was, people always say he brought realism, you know, but there were other writers who were also doing the same thing, like okay. Ahmad Rejal Udin, mm-hmm. Their works were had, Realistic element as well, but why did why Munshi became more prominent? Because he had relationship with the Europeans, right? And they were aware of his work, and mm-hmm. they brought his work into schools. I think that was the main one, the main driving force. You know, okay, it went into not just schools later on into universities. When the first university Malaya opened in Singapore, his work was part of the syllabus. So okay. I think that how the continuation of his work went on, and people became more aware of his work. You know, mm. and why certain other Malay writers of his generation is not that well known. You know? Okay, so who are some of these writers? Maybe you want to share them with us uh, and tell us more about how their approach to realism might be might differ from Munshi Abdullah. Uh, I know their work, but I'm not totally familiar to discuss yeah. it. And like Ahmad Rijaluddin, you know, uh, who wrote about the the story in Batavia, you know, and Laudian who wrote Hikayat Nakoda Muda, but I haven't made a Great comparison with Munshi Abdullah's work to discuss that one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. It, it seems like networking is as important as, uh, as it is today, right? Based on, mm-hmm. based on your description of how I think Munshi Abdullah gained a lot more popularity compared to you know, other writers during that era. So. Yeah, because he was just a normal citizen and he didn't have any relation with mm-hmm. the palace. Mm-hmm. You know? so, because at that time, if you're a Malay writer, the only way you're going to get your works published if you're writing in the palace. Mm-hmm. You know? Like Raja Ali Haji had that access, you know, because in Riau, they had their own printing, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, if you're just a normal person, Singapore or Melaka, you had to be close with the Europeans. Like. They right. had their access to technology, which he had, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, having access to technology is one thing, right? Then uh, having an audience who will read your book is mm-hmm. sort of like another thing. Mm-hmm. What was, you said, you almost suggested that the reading public is not large. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what was changing at the time as well? Who would have the means to, you know, acquire a text like this? Uh, how much would a book Cost and uh, you know how is the stories or the ideas then circulated within like the Malay community? Uh, very small, very small, right. and and that's why I think they switched to lithographic painting. And okay. interestingly, one of his work, uh, the voyage to Klantan, was done in both uh, style. You know, it, it had 
the Rumi printing and also the Jawi printing. So they they were okay. experimenting. Okay, how can we sell this to the Malay public? You know, right. and then in the end they decide the best solution is to do lithograph printing. You know? Okay. Uh, but even when you look at his major work, Ikhaya Abdullah, it was a very expensive edition. You know, mm-hmm. it had coloured uh, book design in in front. It was quite thick. You know, so I. I don't. Ima- I can't imagine that a a, a Malay crowd uh, like when it came out, like they were enthusiastic to get it, and it must have been quite expensive mm. at that time. But at the same time, during that period, there was also this interesting phenomenon happening in port cities, right? Uh, that the emergence of borrowing libraries yes, right, uh, yeah. begin to sort of uh, was set up by principally a lot of the Pranakans, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they're Jawi Pranakans or. China Pranakans, mm-hmm. and basically what are these are uh, set up as uh, they are library institutions where you have a subscription or rent a book sort of like system. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Uh, can you tell us more about that and how that works in, in terms of how it helps to distribute the tax or helps to sort of like spread ideas? Mm. Uh, uh, because at that time, like I said, the most of the many manuscripts were either with the aristocrats or they mm-hmm. were owned by certain individuals. Right. So they were also collectors, you know, mm-hmm. uh, mostly in Batavia, but a few were existed in, in Singapore at that time. Mm-hmm. So you could go to this place that, because all of these uh, renting places, private library, mm-hmm. had their own scriptorium, you know, mm-hmm. their own private place where they copied. Like a kutubkana. Uh, kutubkana, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you could come and just put a few cents borrowed uh, certain manuscripts mm-hmm. right? and compared to I think if you go to the palace well, it would have been more expensive or you you wouldn't be able to borrow out the palace in the first place yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. so it, but I think even though that was the case but it was still a limited thing you know, because you had to copy it by hand you know those, mm-hmm. those materials you know only when uh, printing came, it became more accessible to a larger audience. But this was gradually, you know, I think during Abdullah's time, it was he uh, did manage to witness that that mass distribution of, of Malay printed work. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Only a, a little bit later, you know, when Shalabar uh, printed the uh, Hikai Abdullah, uh, it started to enter the school. And it was produced in much larger numbers. Oh, when was this? Uh, during the early 20th, 20th century. Okay, yeah. right, yeah. right, okay. Mm-hmm. So following on that, mm-hmm. uh, I know Munshi Abdullah passed away sometime around 1850s, am I right? 1854, 1854, 1854 yes, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So what happened between 1854 and the early 20th sort of century? A lot of people sort of uh, seem to sort of gloss over the fact there's this 50 year yeah, uh, period right. where I'm sure a lot of sort of like happened and, and you know the, the the general story we get about sort of Malay literature mm-hmm. doesn't always address that there is this 50 year between Munshi Abdullah yeah. and uh, the early 20th century where That's suddenly right. printing press was sort of like you know vibrant and alive and mm-hmm. you know have a mass sort of like public mm-hmm. for me even for me it's still a mystery you know why there was a huge gap you know between uh, Abdullah's generation and that which came later like Syed Shah Al-Hadi which like kind of kick-started the uh, modern Malaysian literature. You know? uh, mm-hmm. because one reason I think could be because uh, the access to all these materials was very restricted to only certain uh, institutions. You know? like, like I said, it was printed mostly by, by the English and the Dutch and only certain number of group of people could able to read this Hikayat uh, Abdullah. You know? yeah. And also I think his, his figure, his writing, you know, was, was it in tune with the way most of the Malay communities viewed themselves okay. yeah. uh-uh. right, so, right could right. have been that you know right. because even when you compare for example during the early 1920s you know, when Hikayat Friday Hanum came out you know the style was still very similar to the Hikayat it mm-hmm. had a romantic feel it was a love story 
we put that side by side with with Abdullah. Abdullah looks more modern, you know, compared right. to their work. You know? right, right, right. So you can just imagine that it would have been very strange for for a Malay community to read something mm. very <laughs> harsh and very critical, you know, mm. and that, that, which Abdullah wrote. Yeah. So it wouldn't be until Zaba came along to Pendeta Zaba came along to mm. reform the language or mm. to modernize it, yeah. as they as they say, uh, that suddenly. Mushi Abdullah makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah. Suddenly he, he speaks a modern language. Mm-hmm. Before that, he was just speaking a strange tongue mm-hmm. on some yes. level. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> okay, that sounds like a very interesting topic. I look forward to seeing the exhibition. Yeah, and mm-hmm. before we go, maybe we can just uh, remind our listeners um, when is it happening again? This yeah, we, uh, our Mushi Abdullah exhibition um, by Malacca in fact will begin uh, on the 23rd of November. Uh-huh. It ends on the 8th of December, so it's a two two-week period, you know. The title will be Munshi Abdullah as a social media influencer. Um, and this we're will take place in? In Melaka, okay. uh, at Rumah Melaka, uh-huh. uh, located near, uh, in Jonker Street, uh, near Masjid Kampung Keling. Mm-hmm. But if you want to know further, please check out our Facebook page. But what's the historical significance of the venue? That you've uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes uh, because we've chosen this uh, specific location because it's the, where they say he was born. He was okay. born in Kampung Ketek, you know. And the exhibition venue is right in front of the house that people allegedly associate with where he was born. There's a there's a rumah Munshi Abdullah behind our exhibition venue. Okay. You know? So okay. that's the historical, you could say, significance to this exhibition. You know? Okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Great. Looking forward to that. Okay. So thank you very much, uh, Wan Azrik. Thank uh, you very much. Uh, thank okay. you. You just heard from yeah. Wan Azrik. He's from like, In Fact, and uh, he's joined by Simon soon. And we've been talking about Munshi Abdullah. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio, or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. Uh, you can also always follow us on Facebook. Look for BFM Night School there. Don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can find on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Uh, thanks once again, Wan Azrik and Simon soon. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Hanif Baharuddin, and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89. 9.9 the business station thank you for listening to this podcast to find more great interviews go to bfm.my or find us on itunes bfm 89.9 the business station